The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. John Gibbons joins us for The Last Word on the Environment, our weekly spot. And I want to start with something that I had no idea took place last weekend, despite the fact that I watched, unfortunately, Nottingham Forest beat Leeds in full last Sunday, watched bits of Tottenham against Manchester City and other games. I had no idea that it was Green Football Weekend. Uh, good evening, Matt. Yeah, it, it came as a bit of a surprise to me too. I'm not quite as dedicated a football fan as you. I tend to restrict my diet to match of the day on Saturday night. And I was watching uh, my team, Liverpool, getting trounced by Wolves and I spotted uh, green armbands. So, lo and behold, the, the commentator on, on match today mentioned that this was part of what they call the Green Football Weekend. And I suppose first and foremost, it's an awareness uh, exercise uh, among the Football League, not just the Premiership, but the Football League in Britain, which is 92 clubs, I believe, in total. Uh, basically, I suppose, to get the message out uh, to ordinary, I guess, to the public that there is an issue and that the, the football business, if you like, or the, the football fraternity uh, is interested in getting on board. And probably where this does come home to roost, Matt, is that one of the stats around this is that of those 92 football grounds, it's reckoned that 23 of them will either be underwater or at risk of repeated flooding by 2050. That's within the next 27 to 30 years uh, time frame. So you're looking at roughly one in four of those clubs facing direct disruption as a result of climate change. So you can see it, uh, why it's now becoming much more of an issue for them. Okay, but they didn't sell it very well, did they? If even football fans like me didn't even notice that it was going on. No, no, absolutely. I think Sky were probably the main people pushing it. And actually Sky have been surprised, well, Sky UK have been surprisingly strong on, on climate, like way ahead of the BBC and, and don't even get me started on, on RT and, and, and so on. They've been pretty good. But I think the purpose here, and for example, when I dug into this, it, 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 it is all a little mashed potatoes and gravy. For example, there are three climate friendly steps. Number one, Four-minute showers, ideally with a friend, obviously. Number two, uh, have two meat-free days a week. And number three, turn the thermostat down by one degree centigrade. So really, it's tiny baby steps. It's sort of 1980s style stuff. Well, actually, yeah. also look at all the oil money sloshing around the English Premier League. Yeah. The, the ownership of Manchester City, Newcastle United, other clubs. This is true. Soon, soon to be Manchester United, averted by the Qataris, although they're more gas than oil. This is true. Now, I think on the other side of this, of course, what soccer players have uniquely, uh, particularly in, 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 in countries like Britain, they have huge influence. They really are important influencers. And for example, Gary Lineker, uh, as a case in point, you know, the, the match of the day commentator, he has nine million followers on Twitter. And the reason I mention Gary Lineker, apart from the fact, obviously, that he follows me on Twitter, uh, is that he's really strongly committed to climate action. And he boosts, supports and retweets and engages with climate activists and with journalists who are interested in this beat. For example, he's been a really strong, publicly strong supporter of Greta Thunberg right from the go. And you can imagine, Matt, how popular that makes Gary, Gary Lineker. There's nothing in it for him, but he's doing it because he understands the issue. So I think the leadership thing here is not to be sniffed at. Now, drawing it out a little bit, soccer uh, is reckoned to account for about, this is the whole industry, about 0.4% of global carbon emissions. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, but when I looked it up, that's about the equivalent emissions of Holland. And actually, three times the national emissions of Ireland. So so it really is, internationally, uh, it's a huge industry with a huge footprint. And most of that footprint, Matt, of course, comes from travel related to sport. And this is the, the case with soccer and with other sports. And, and for example, if I take that back to my actual favourite sport, which is rugby, uh, something we've seen with the domestic league, which 
had been constrained, if you like, between between Irish clubs, clubs in Wales, Scotland and occasional trips to Italy, they've more recently included South African clubs. So the carbon footprint of, of rugby, if you like, in that in that league has exploded as a result. Listener says, Sky pushing green football, but keep putting fixtures on TV at times when it's almost impossible for fans to take public transport to get to and from the games. Let's move on to... Plug-in hybrid cars, you've been doubtful about them for a while and you now have more evidence to back up your suspicions. Well, as you know, Matt, the one thing I really hate is telling you how that I was right all along. <laughs> John Gibbons in I told you so shocked. No. Exactly. OK, this is, this is uh, some research that was commissioned by an NGO called Transport Environment. They're a Brussels-based NGO and they specialise in transport and uh, emissions. And they, they looked at these PHEVs. And again, to, clo- to clarify what a PHEV is it basically means it's a plug-in hybrid. So these are the this is your your petrol car with a plug. So it's a combination of petrol and battery. We have one in our front yeah. driveway. Yeah, indeed. And in a, in man, these have been sold, if you like, as the as the the best of both worlds. That you've got the security of petrol and you've got the cleanness of battery. And it's a brilliant pitch. The problem, of course, is that once you actually test it, uh, the pitch falls apart. Let me give you some examples. City tests were carried out on the BMW 3 Series uh, hybrid. And what they discovered is that its actual emissions in city driving were six times higher than the the, the official, what, what are called the WLTP uh, rating. Six times higher. The Peugeot 308, six times higher. And the Renault Megane, four times higher. That's in the city cycle, Matt. When you take it on commuter tests, the, the, you're talking about, on average, three times higher. In fact, the Megane was the only one uh, on the, on the, the commuter test that was that performed in any way remotely equivalent to what the manufacturers are stating. So rather than PHEVs being the best of both worlds, it turns out, in fact, that they may be the worst of both worlds, where you're lugging around two powertrains, uh, you have the built-in inefficiency of that, the additional cost of that. Now, on a positive note, uh, Ireland scrapped grants for PHEVs uh, from January 2022. And it's interesting reading the the transport and environment report on this, they point out that across Europe, uh, a third of a billion euros a year is still being uh, given by governments in purchase subsidies to PHEVs. Hold on a second. Even if the hybrid is not as good as the fully electric car, is it not better than having a simply exclusively petrol or diesel car? Well, I think the analogy I would use for that is that this, the hybrid, these plug-in hybrids and of course the wretched self-charging hybrids, so-called, these are the, the, the motor industry's equivalent of the light cigarette and the menthol cigarettes. This is what happened to the tobacco industry. When they were facing regulation, they came up with all manner of cigarettes that apparently were, quote, better for you. What they're actually doing, Matt, is they're slowing down the necessary transition to full battery electric. The the benefits of full battery electric are overwhelming versus internal combustion. Now, this is a halfway house, but it turns out to be really, uh, as I say, the worst of all possible A worlds. lot of listeners get in touch saying as well that the batteries themselves are a major environmental concern and the mining that is done for the elements in them. Yeah, I mean, this is always the case. I mean, you can't, as they say, uh, make a make a make an omelette without breaking eggs, and this applies for for batteries. And I suppose at the moment in the world, there are far more batteries ending up in laptops, in phones, in. Uh, 
disposable vaping units than there are in all the electric cars in the world. So if your listeners concerned about that, they might want to check on their own use of lithium batteries in all the various devices they have around at home. It is an issue, but as I say, I'm always concerned and slightly alarmed by people who develop a sudden interest in the mining impacts of one element, lithium, and they ignore the mining impacts, for example, of coal or oil or gas. Um, Tell us why you might need to use an umbrella at night other than when it's raining. Yeah, this is a study that came to us from the UK and it's a group uh, who had a look at a phenomenon called uh, light pollution. This is nighttime light pollution. And they they did a little experiment and it's a bit gimmicky. It was only really picked up by the Telegraph, which will always be a red flag uh, as as on that regard. But what they discovered is they could they could get solar panels to operate, not very well, but to operate at night. There was so much spillover light pollution in, in the London area that they were able to do this. And we see this. In fact, if you've seen those... So this is from street lights and... Street lights, from office neon lights and, and so like on that. and so forth. And one of the great ironies, Matt, of this is that we've actually had a sharp increase in light pollution in the last 10 years. And the reason for it, of course, is that lights have become much more ubiquitous now because of the arrival of LEDs. LEDs basically mean you can put lights anywhere. They're much cheaper to run. And you might remember I I referred to something called the Jevons paradox. This is the energy rebound, that when you make energy cheap, as in the case of LEDs, what people do is rather than reducing their energy consumption, they just put in more lights. Yeah, but a lot of people like lights in cities and towns and villages because it makes them feel safer. It makes them feel safer from the possibility of attack or have maybe been hit by cars or bicycles as they walk along the footpaths and step out onto the road, that it creates a degree of safety. Yeah, I mean, there is that, there is that element and there had, that argument has certainly been made, uh, but it's not compelling. On the other side of this, what we do know is that excessive nighttime lighting uh, interferes with human circadian rhythms, which in simple terms means our ability to sleep properly, which is no small thing. Uh, our melatonin production, which is a hormone that regulates our sense of night and day, is disrupted, Matt, by, particularly by blue light. And blue light is the light that occurs naturally during the middle of the day. Now, at the ends of the day, in the morning and the evening, we have, we have kind of red light and amber light. When we get those lights, our brain is signalled that it's time to shut down, it's time to go to sleep. However, LEDs, blue lights, which we get, of course, in, in in uh, uh, iPhones and so on, and we also get them in these LED streetlights. What they do is they signal to your brain that it's the middle of the day and they cause sleep disruption. Now, again, this is not trivial. Sleep disruption leads to stress, headaches, anxiety, and has been directly implicated in cancers. One final one. What's climate quitting and why is it apparently catching on? Yeah, we've, we've all heard of quiet quitting, which apparently is where you don't work more than you're, than you're actually hired to do. And it, it, it got this strange nickname of, of quiet quitting. Climate quitting is, is a, I think, a slightly more interesting take. And what we're discovering is that more and more young people in particular are basically saying no to employers who they believe are bad on what are called ESG. And ESG is environmental, social and governance factors. In other words, uh, employers who are lousy on the environment. This is now becoming much more of a thing for... for an, an really? In, oh, absolutely. This survey was done in the UK by, by KPMG. Uh, 6,000 UK adults, office workers, students and apprentices were surveyed. And what they found is among the 25 to 35-year-olds... Uh, 55% of them said that one of their top priorities for their employer is that they had a good ESG profile in that company. In other words, young people realise that certain companies 
Certain businesses are burning the world down, their world down, and basically they don't want to go work for them. And this is a really important thing for people to make decisions about the future, that people are like more and more uh, young people are going into college courses in, 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 the, in the, sun, the sunrise industries, in, in renewable energy. They don't want to work for oil companies. They don't want to work for basically a dying industry that is trying to take us down with them. John Gibbons, thank you. We'll see you again next Thursday for the last word in the environment. The last word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today FM.